Chapter Fourteen of A Son of the Middle Border by Hamlin Garland. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Wheat and the Harvest. The early seventies were years of swift change on the middle border. Day by day, the settlement thickened. Section by section, the prairie was blackened by the plow. Month by month, the sweet wild meadows were fenced and pastured. And so at last the colts and cows all came into captivity, and our horseback riding ceased, cut short as if by some imperial decree. Lanes of barbed wire replaced the winding wagon trails. Our saddles gathered dust in the grain sheds, and groves of Lombardy poplar and European larch replaced the towheads of aspen and hazel through which we had pursued the wolf and fox. I will not say that this produced in me any keen sense of sorrow at the time, for though I missed our horse-herds and the charm of the open spaces, I turned to tamer sports with the resilient adaptability of youth. If I could not ride, I could at least play baseball, and the swimming-hole in the little cedar remained untouched. The coming in of numerous eastern settlers brought added charm to neighborhood life. Picnics, conventions, Fourth of July celebrations, all intensified our interest, and in their increasing drama we were compensated, in some degree at least, for the delights which were passing with the prairie. Our schoolhouse did not change, except for the worse. No one thought of adding a tree or a vine to its ugly yard. Sunsmit, bare as a nose, it stood at the crossroads, receiving us through its drab doorway as it had done from the first. Its benches, hideously hacked and thick with grime, were as hard and uncomfortable as when I first saw them, and the windows remained unshaded and unwashed. Most of the farmhouses in the region remained equally unadorned, but Deacon Gammons had added an L and established a parlor, and Anson Birch had painted his barn. The plain began to take on a comfortable look for some of the planes of the windbreaks had risen above the roofs, and growing maple softened the effect of the bleak expanse. My mother, like most of her neighbors, still cooked and served meals in our one living room during the winter, but moved into a summer kitchen in April. This change always gave us a sense of luxury, which is pathetic if you look at it that way. Our front room became suddenly and happily a parlor, and was so treated. Mother at once got down the rag carpet and gave orders for us to shake out and bring in some clean straw to put under it, and when we had tacked it down and rearranged the furniture, it was no longer a place for muddy boots and shirt-sleeved shiftlessness. It had an air of being in perpetual Sabbath leisure. The garlands were not so poor as all this would seem to imply, for we were now farming over three hundred acres of land and caring for a herd of cattle and many swine. It merely meant that my father did not feel the need of a best room, and mother and Harriet were not yet able to change his mind. Harriet wanted an organ like Mary Abby Gammons, mother longed for a real ingrain carpet, and we all clamored for a spring wagon. We got the wagon first. That bleak little house is clearly defined in my mind at this moment. The low lean-to kitchen the rag-carpeted sitting-room with its two chromos of wide awake and fast asleep, its steel engraving of General Grant, and its tiny melodeon in the corner, 
all these come back to me. There are very few books or magazines in the scene, but there are piles of newspapers, for my father was an omnivorous reader of all things political. It was not a hovel, it was a pioneer cabin persisting into a settled community, that was all. During these years the whole middle border was menaced by bands of horse thieves operating under a secret well-organized system. Horses disappeared night by night and were never recovered, till at last the farmers, in despair of the local authorities, organized a horse-thief protective association which undertook to pursue and punish the robbers, and to pay for such animals as were not returned. Our county had an association of this sort, and shortly after we opened our new farm my father became a member. My first knowledge of this fact came when he nailed on our barn door the white cloth poster which proclaimed in bold black letters a warning and a threat signed by the committee. I was always a little in doubt as to whether the horse-thieves or ourselves were to be protected, for the notice was fair warning to them as well as an assurance to us. Anyhow, very few horses were stolen from barns thus protected. The campaign against the thieves gave rise to many stirring stories which lost nothing in my father's telling of them. Jim McCarty was agent for our association and its effectiveness was largely due to his swift and fearless action. We all had a pleasant sense of the mystery of the night-riding which went on during this period, and no man could pass with a lead horse without being under suspicion of being either a thief or a deputy. Then, too, the thieves were supposed to have in every community a spy who gave information as to the best horses and informed the gang as to the membership of the protective society. One of our neighbors fell under suspicion at this time, and never got clear of it. I hope we did him no injustice in this, for never after could I bring myself to enter his house, and he was clearly ostracized by all the neighbors. As I look back over my life on that Iowa farm, the song of the reaper fills large place in my mind. We were all worshippers of wheat in those days. The men thought and talked of little else between seeding and harvest, and you will not wonder at this if you have known and bowed down before such abundance as we then enjoyed. Deep is the breast of a man, wide as the sea, heavy-headed, supple-stocked, many-voiced, full of multitudinous, secret, whispered colloquies, a meeting-place of winds and of sunlight, our fields ran to the world's end. We trembled when the storm lay hard upon the wheat. We exulted as the lilac shadows of noonday drifted over it. We went out into it at noon, when all was still. So still we could hear the pulse of the transforming sap as it crept from cool root to swaying plume. We stood before it at evening when the setting sun flooded it with crimson the bearded heads lazily swirling under the wings of the wind, the mousing hawk dipping into its green deeps like the eagle into the sea, and our hearts expanded with the beauty and the mystery of it. And back of all this was the knowledge that its abundance meant a new carriage, an addition to the house, or a new suit of clothes. Haying was over, and day by day we boys watched with deepening interest while the hot sun transformed the juices of the soil into those stately stalks. I loved to go out into the fairy forest of it, 
and lying there, silent in its swaying deeps, hear the wild chickens peep, and the wind sing its subtle song over our heads. Day by day I studied the barley as it turned yellow, first at the root and then at the neck, while the middle joints, rank and sappy, retained their blue-green sheen, until at last the lower leaves began to wither, and the stems to stiffen, in order to uphold the daily increasing weight of the milky berries, and then, almost in an hour, lo, the edge of the field became a banded ribbon of green and yellow, languidly waving in and out with every rush of the breeze. Now we got out the reaper, put the sickles in order, and father laid in a store of provisions. Extra hands were hired, and at last, early on a hot July morning, the boss mounted to his seat on the self-rake McCormick and drove into the field. Frank rode the lead horse. Four stalwart hands and myself took stations behind the reaper, and the battle was on. Reaping generally came about the 20th of July, the hottest and driest part of the summer, and was the most pressing work of the year. It demanded early rising for the men, and it meant an all-day broiling over the kitchen stove for the women. Stern, incessant toil went on inside and out from dawn till sunset, no matter how the thermometer sizzled. On many days the mercury mounted to ninety-five in the shade, but with wide fields, all yellowing at the same moment, no one thought of laying off. A storm might sweep it flat, or if neglected too long, it might crinkle. Our reaper in 1874 was a new model of the McCormick self-rake. The marsh harvester was not yet in general use. The woodstropper, the Seymour and Morgan hand-rake contraptions, seemed a long way in the past. True, the McCormick required four horses to drag it, but it was effective. It was hard to believe that anything more cunning would ever come to claim the farmer's money. Weird tales of a machine on which two men rode and bound twelve acres of wheat in ten hours came to us, but we did not potently believe these reports. On the contrary, we accepted the self-rake as quite the final word in harvesting machinery, and cheerily bent to the binding of sheaves with their own straw, in the good old time-honored way. No task, save that of cradling, surpassed in severity binding on a station. It was a full-grown man's job, but every boy was ambitious to try his hand, and when at fourteen years of age I was promoted from bundle boy to be one of the five hands to bind after the reaper, I went to my corner with joy and confidence. For two years I had been serving as binder on the corners, to keep the grain out of the way of the horses, and I knew my job. I was short and broad-shouldered, with large strong hands admirably adapted for this work, and for the first two hours easily held my own with the rest of the crew. But as the morning wore on and the sun grew hotter, my enthusiasm waned. A painful void developed in my chest. My breakfast had been ample, but no mere stomachful of food could carry a growing boy through five hours of desperate toil. Along about a quarter to ten, I began to scan the field with anxious eye, longing to see Harriet and the promised luncheon basket. Just when it seemed that I could endure the strain no longer, she came bearing a jug of cool milk, some cheese, and some deliciously fresh fried cakes. 
With keen joy I set a couple of tall sheaves together like a tent and flung myself down flat on my back in their shadow to devour my lunch. Tired as I was, my dim eyes apprehended something of the splendor of the shining clouds which rolled like storms of snow through the deep blue spaces of sky, and so, resting silently as a clod, I could hear the chirp of the crickets, the buzzing wings of flies, and the faint, fairy-like tread of smaller unseen insects, hurrying their way just beneath my ear in the stubble. Strange green worms, grasshoppers, and shining beetles crept over me as I dozed. This delicious, dreamful respite was broken by the far-off approaching purr of the sickle, flicked by the faint snap of the driver's whip, and out of the low rustle of the ever-stirring Lilliputian forest came the wailing cry of a baby wild chicken lost from its mother, a falling, thrilling, piteous little pipe. Such momentary communion with nature seemed all the sweeter for the work which had preceded it, as well as that which was to follow it. It took resolution to rise and go back to my work, but I did it, sustained by a kind of soldierly pride. At noon we hurried to the house, surrounded the kitchen table, and fell upon our boiled beef and potatoes with such ferocity that in fifteen minutes our meal was over. There was no ceremony and very little talking till the hid wolf was appeased. Then came a heavenly half-hour of rest on the cool grass in the shade of the trees, a siesta as luxurious as that of a Spanish monarch. But, alas, this nooning, as we called it, was always cut short by father's word of sharp command, Roll out, boys! And again the big white jugs were filled at the well. The horses, lazy with food, led the way back to the field, and the stern contest began again. All nature at this hour seemed to invite to repose rather than to labor, and as the heat increased I longed with wordless fervor for the green woods of the Cedar River. At times the gentle wind hardly moved the bended heads of the barley, and the hawks hung in the air like trout sleeping in deep pools. The sunlight was a golden, silent, scorching cataract, yet each of us must strain his tired muscles and bend his aching back to the harvest. Supper came at five, another delicious interval, and then at six we all went out again for another hour or two in the cool of the sunset. However, the pace was more leisurely now, for the end of the day was near. I always enjoyed this period, for the shadows lengthening across the stubble, and the fiery sun, veiled by the gray clouds of the west, had wondrous charm. The air began to moisten and grow cool. The voices of the men pulsed powerfully and cheerfully across the narrowing field of unreaped grain. The prairie hens led forth their broods to feed, and at last father's long-drawn and musical cry, Turn out! All hands turn out! rang with restful significance through the dusk. Then, slowly, with low-hung heads, the freed horses moved toward the barn, walking with lagging steps like weary warriors going into camp. In all the toil of the harvest field, the water jug filled a large place. It was a source of anxiety as well as comfort. To keep it cool, to keep it well filled, was a part of my job. 
no man passed it at the home corner of the field. It is a delightful part of my recollections of the harvest. O oh, cool gray jug that touched my lips, in kiss that softly closed and clung, no Spanish wine the tippler sips, no port the poet's praise has sung, such pure untainted sweetness yields as cool gray jug in harvest fields. I see it now, a clover leaf outspread upon its sweating side. As from the sheltering sheaf I pluck and swing it high, the wild field glows with noonday heat, the winds are tangled in the wheat. The swarming crickets blithely cheep, across the stir of waving grain I see the burnished reaper creep. The lunch boy comes, and once again the jug its crystal coolness yields. O cool gray jug in harvest fields. My father did not believe in serving strong liquor to his men, and seldom treated them to even beer. While not a teetotaler, he was strongly opposed to all that intemperance represented. He furnished the best of food and tea and coffee, but no liquor, and the men respected him for it. The reaping on our farm that year lasted about four weeks. Barley came first, wheat followed, the oats came last of all. No sooner was the final swath cut than the barley was ready to be put under cover, and stacking, a new and less exacting phase of the harvest, began. This job required less men than reaping, hence a part of our hands were paid off. Only the more responsible ones were retained. The rush, the strain of the reaping, gave place to a leisurely, steady, day-to-day -day garnering of the thoroughly seasoned shocks into great conical piles, four in a place in the midst of the stubble, which was already growing green with swiftly springing weeds. A full crew consisted of a stacker, a boy to pass bundles, two drivers for the heavy wagon racks, and a pitcher in the field who lifted the sheaves from the shock with a three-tined fork and threw them to the man on the load. At the age of ten I had been taught to handle bundles on the stack, but now at fourteen I took my father's place as stacker, whilst he passed the sheaves and told me how to lay them. This exalted me at the same time that it increased my responsibility. It made a man of me, not only in my own estimation, but in the eyes of my boy companions to whom I discoursed loftily on the value of bulges and the advantages of the stack over the rick. No sooner was the stacking ended than the dreaded task of plowing began for Burton and John and me. Every morning, while our fathers and the hired men shouldered their forks and went away to help some neighbor thrash, changing works, we drove our teams into the field there to plod round and round in solitary course. Here I acquired the feeling which I afterward put into verse. A lonely task it is to plow. All day the black and shining soil rolls like a ribbon from the moldboard's glistening curve. All day the horses toil, battling with savage flies, and strain their creaking single trees. All day the crickets peer from wind-blown stacks of grain. Franklin's job was almost as lonely. He was set to herd the cattle on the harvested stubble and keep them out of the cornfield. A little later, in October, when I was called to take my place as corn-husker, he was promoted to the plow. Our only respite 
during the months of October and November was the occasional cold rain, which permitted us to read or play cards in the kitchen. Cards! I never look at a certain type of playing card without experiencing a return of the wonder and the guilty joy with which I bought of Metellus Kirby my first deck and slipped it into my pocket. There was an alluring oriental imaginative quality in the drawing on the face cards. They brought to me vague hints of mad monarchs, desperate stakes, and huge sudden rewards. All that I had heard or read of Mississippi gamblers came back to make those gaudy bits of pasteboard marvelous. My father did not play cards, hence, although I had no reason to think he would forbid them to me, I took a fearsome joy in assuming his bitter opposition. For a time my brother and I played in secret, and then one day, one cold bleak day, as we were seated on the floor of the granary, playing on an upturned half-bushel measure, shivering with the chill, our fingers numb and blue, the door opened and father looked in. We waited while his round eagle-gray eyes took in the situation, and it seemed a long, terrifying interval. Then at last he mildly said, I guess you'd better go in and play by the stove. This isn't very comfortable. Stunned by this unexpected concession, I gathered up the cards, and as I took my way to the house, I thought deeply. The meaning of that quiet voice, that friendly invitation, was not lost on me. The soldier rose to grand heights by that single act, and when I showed the cards to mother and told her that father had consented to our playing, she looked grave but made no objection to our use of the kitchen table. As a matter of fact, they both soon after joined our game. If you are going to play, they said, we'd rather you played right here with us. Thereafter, rainy days were less dreary and the evenings shorter. Everybody played authors at this time also, and to this day I cannot entirely rid myself of the estimations which our pack of cards fixed in my mind. Prue and I, and the Blythedale romance, were on an equal footing so far as our game went, and Howells, Bret Hart, and Dickens were all of far-off romantic horizon. Writers were singular, exalted beings found only in the East, in splendid cities. They were not folks, they were demigods, men and women living aloof and looking down benignantly on toiling common creatures like us. It never entered my mind that anyone I knew could ever by any chance meet an author, or even hear one lecture, although it was said that they did sometimes come west on altruistic educational journeys, and that they sometimes reached our county town. I am told, I do not know if it is true, that I am one of the names on a present-day deck of author cards. If so, I wish I could call in that small plowboy of 1874 and let him play a game with this particular pack. The crops on our farms in those first years were enormous and prices were good, and yet the homes of the neighborhood were slow in taking on grace or comfort. I don't know why this was so, unless it was that the men were continually buying more land and more machinery. Our own stables were still straw-roofed sheds, but the trees which we had planted had grown swiftly into a grove, and a garden, 
tended at odd moments by all hands, brought small fruits and vegetables in season. Although a constantly improving collection of farm machinery lightened the burdens of the husbandman, the drudgery of the housewife's dishwashing and cooking did not correspondingly lessen. I fear it increased, for with the widening of the fields came the doubling of the harvest hands, and my mother continued to do most of the housework herself. Cooking, sewing, washing, churning, and nursing the sick from time to time, no one in trouble ever sent for Isabel Garland in vain, and I have many recollections of neighbors riding up in the night and calling for her with agitated voices. Of course I did not realize, and I am sure my father did not realize, the heavy burden, the endless grind of her toil. Harriet helped, of course, and Frank and I churned and carried wood and brought water, but even with such aid, the round of mother's duties must have been as relentless as a treadmill. Even on Sunday, when we were free for a part of the day, she was required to furnish forth three meals, and to help Frank and Jessie dress for church. She sang less and less, and the songs we loved were seldom referred to. If I could only go back for one little hour and take her in my arms, and tell her how much I owe her for those grinding days. Meanwhile, we were all growing away from our life in the old Wisconsin coulee. We heard from William but seldom, and David, who had bought a farm of his own some ten miles to the south of us, came to see us only at long intervals. He still owned his long-barreled rifle, but it hung unused on a peg in the kitchen. Swiftly, the world of the hunter was receding, never to return. Prairie chickens, rabbits, ducks, and other small games still abounded, but they did not call for the bullet, and turkey shoots were events of the receding past. Almost in a year the ideals of the countryside changed. David was in truth a survival of a more heroic age, a time which he loved to lament with my father, who was almost as great a lover of the wilderness as he. None of us sang or the hills and legions boys. Our share in the conquest of the West seemed complete. Threshing time, which was becoming each year less of a bee and more of a job, many of the men were mere hired hands, was made distinctive by David, who came over from Orchard with his machine, the last time it turned out, and stayed to the end. As I cut bands beside him in the dust and thunder of the cylinder, I regained something of my boyish worship of his strength and skill. The tireless easy swing of his great frame was wonderful to me, and when, in my weariness, I failed to slash a band, he smiled and tore the sheaf apart, thus deepening my love for him. I looked up at him at such times as a sailor regards his captain on the bridge, his handsome, immobile, bearded face, his air of command his large gestures as he rolled the broad sheaves into the howling maw of the machine made of him a chieftain. The touch of melancholy, which even then had begun to develop, added to his manly charm. One day in late September, as I was plowing in the field at the back of the farm, I encountered a particularly troublesome thicket of weeds and vines in the stubble, and decided to burn the way before the coulter. We had been doing this ever since the frost had killed the vegetation, 
but always on lands after they had been safeguarded by strips of ploughing. On this particular land no fire had been set, for the reason that four large stacks of wheat still stood waiting the thresher. In my irritation and self-confidence I decided to clear away the matted stubble on the same strip, though at some distance from the stacks. This seemed safe enough at the time, for the wind was blowing gently from the opposite direction. It was a lovely golden day, and as I stood watching the friendly flame clearing the ground for me, I was filled with satisfaction. Suddenly I observed that the line of red was moving steadily against the wind and toward the stacks. My satisfaction changed to alarm. The matted weeds furnished a thick bed of fuel, and against the progress of the flame I had nothing to offer. I could only hope that the thinning stubble would permit me to trample it out. I tore at the ground in desperation, hoping to make a bare spot which the flame could not leap. I trampled the fire with my bare feet, I beat at it with my hat, I screamed for help. Too late I thought of my team and the plow with which I might have drawn a furrow around the stacks. The flame touched the high-piled sheaves, it ran lightly, beautifully up the sides, and as I stood watching it I thought, it is all a dream, it can't be true. But it was. In less than twenty minutes the towering piles had melted into four glowing heaps of ashes. Four hundred dollars had gone up in that blaze. Slowly, painfully, I hobbled to the plow and drove my team to the house. Although badly burned, my mental suffering was so much greater that I felt only part of it. Leaving the horses at the well, I hobbled into the house to my mother. She, I knew, would sympathize with me and shield me from the just wrath of my father who was away, but was due to return in an hour or two. Mother received me in silence, bandaged my feet, and put me to bed where I lay in shame and terror. At last I heard father come in. He questioned. Mother's voice replied. He remained ominously silent. She went on quietly, but with an eloquence unusual in her. What she said to him I never knew, but when he came up the stairs and stood staring down at me, his anger had cooled. He merely asked me how I felt, uncovered my burned feet, examined them, put the sheet back, and went away, without a word either of reproof or consolation. None of us, except little Jessie, ever alluded to this tragic matter again. She was accustomed to tell my story as she remembered it. And men the moon changed. The fire ran up the stacks and burned them all down. When I think of the myriads of opportunities for committing mistakes of this sort, I wonder that we had so few accidents. The truth is, our captain taught us to think before we acted, at all times, and we had little of the heedlessness which less experienced children often show. We were in effect small soldiers, and carried some of the responsibilities of soldiers into all that we did. While still I was hobbling about, suffering from my wounds, my uncles William and Frank McClintock drove over from Neshonoc, bringing with them a cloud of strangely moving, revived memories of the hills and woods of our old Wisconsin home. I was peculiarly delighted by this visit, for while the story of my folly was told, it was not dwelt upon. They soon forgot me, and fell naturally into discussion of ancient neighbors and far-away events. 
To me, it was like peering back into a dim, dawn-lit world, wherein all forms were distorted or wondrously aggrandized. William, big, black-bearded and smiling, had lost little of his romantic appeal. Frank, still the wag, was able to turn handsprings and somersaults almost as well as ever, and the talk which followed formed an absorbing review of early days in Wisconsin. It brought up and defined many of the events of our life in the coulee, pictures which were becoming a little vague, a little blurred. Al Randall and Ed Green, who were already almost mythical, were spoken of as living creatures, and thus the far was brought near. Comparisons between the old and the new methods of seeding and harvest also gave me a sense of change, a perception which troubled me a little especially as a wistful note had crept into the voices of these giants of the middle border. They all loved the wilderness too well not to be a little saddened by the clearing away of bosky coverts and the drying up of rippling streams. We sent for Uncle David, who came over on Sunday to spend a night with his brothers, and in the argument which followed I began to sense in him a spirit of restlessness, a growing discontent which covered his handsome face with a deepening shadow. He disliked being tied down to the dull life of the farm, and his horsepower threshing machine no longer paid him enough to compensate for the loss of time and care on the other phases of his industry. His voice was still glorious, and he played the violin when strongly urged, though with a sense of dissatisfaction. He and my mother and Aunt Deborah sang Nellie Wildwood and Lily Dale and Minnie Minturn, just as they used to do in the coulee and I forgot my disgrace and the pain of my blistered feet in the rapture of that exquisite hour of blended melody and memory. The world they represented was passing, and though I did not fully realize this, I sensed in some degree the transitory nature of this reunion. In truth, it never came again. Never again did these three brothers meet, and when they said good-bye to us next morning, I wondered why it was we must be so widely separated from those we love the best. End of chapter 14